Section six of the Normans in European History by Charles Homer Haskins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter three Normandy and England. Part two. Piecing together our scattered information regarding the Normandy of the eleventh century, we note at the outset that it was a feudal society, that is to say, land was for the most part held of a lord by hereditary tenure on condition of military service indeed feudal ideas had spread so far that they even penetrated the church so that in some instances the revenues of the clergy had been granted to laymen and archdeaconries and prebends had been turned into hereditary fiefs with feudal service went the various incidents of feudal tenure and a well-developed feudal jurisdiction of the lord over his tenants and of the greater barons over the less in all this there is nothing to distinguish normandy from the neighboring countries of northern france and as a feudal society is normally a decentralized society we should expect to find the powers of government chiefly in the hands of the local lords a closer study however shows certain peculiarities which are of the utmost importance both for norman and for english history first of all the military service owing to the duke had been systematically assessed in rough units of five or ten knights and this service or its subdivisions had become attached to certain pieces of land or knights fees the amounts of service were fixed by custom and were regularly enforced still more significant are the restrictions placed upon the military power of the barons the symbol and the foundation of feudal authority was the castle wherefore the duke forbade the building of castles and strongholds without his license and required them to be handed over to him on demand private war and the blood feud could not yet be prohibited entirely but they were closely limited no one was allowed to go out to seek his enemy with hauberk and standard and sounding horn assaults and ambushes were not permitted in the duke's forests captives were not to be taken in a feud nor could arms horses or property be carried off from a combat burning plunder and waste were forbidden in pursuing claims to land and except for open crime no one could be condemned to loss of limb unless by judgment of the proper ducal or baronial court coinage generally a valued privilege of the greater lords was in normandy a monopoly of the duke what the absence of such restrictions might mean is well illustrated in england in the reign of stephen when private war unlicensed castles and baronial coinage appeared as the chief evils of an unbridled feudal anarchy in the administration of justice in spite of the great franchises of the barons the duke has a large reserved jurisdiction certain places are under his special protection certain crimes put the offender at his mercy the administrative machinery though in many respects still primitive has kept pace with the duke's authority whereas the capetian king has as his local representatives only the semi-feudal agents on his farms the norman duke has for purposes of local government a real public officer the vicomte commanding his troops guarding his castles maintaining order 
administering justice and collecting the ducal revenues nowhere is the superiority of the norman dukes over their royal overlords more clear than in the matter of finance the housekeeping of the capetian king of the eleventh century was still what the germans call naturalwirtschaft an economic organization based upon payment in produce and labor rather than in money less powerful than certain of his great vassals as he is described by his principal historian Lucher, footnote Lucher, les quatre premiers capetiens in la vis histoire de france paris 1901 volume 2 chapter 2 page 176 and footnote the king lives like them from the income from his farms and tolls the payments of his peasants the labor of his serfs the taxes disguised as gifts which he levies from the bishops and abbots of the neighborhood his granaries of gonesse jeanville mantes etampes furnish his grain his cellars of orleans and argenteuil his wine his forests of rouvray now the bois de boulogne saint-germain fontainebleau yvelines compiegne his game he passes his time in hunting for amusement or to supply his table and travels constantly from estate to estate from abbey to abbey obliged to make full use of his rights of entertainment and to move frequently from place to place in order not to exhaust the resources of his subjects in other words under existing methods of communication it was easier to transport the king and his household than it was to transport food and the king literally boarded round from farm to farm such conditions were typical of the age and they could only be changed by the development of a revenue in money enabling the king to buy where he would and to pay whom he would for service whether personal or political or military only by hard cash could the medieval ruler become independent of the limitations which feudalism placed upon him now while the norman duke derived much of his income from his farms and forests his mills and fishing rights and local monopolies and tolls he had also a considerable revenue in money each vicomte was farmed for a fixed amount and there was probably a regular method of collection and accounting if the king wished to bestow revenue upon a monastery he would grant so many measures of grain at the mills of bourges or so many measures of wine in the vineyards of jouy while in a similar position the norman duke would give money twelve pounds in the farm of argentin sixty shillings and ten pence in the toll of exma or one hundred shillings in the prevote of caen nothing could show more clearly the superiority of normandy in fiscal and hence in political organization where under the forms of feudalism we can already discern the beginnings of the modern state to william's authority in the state we must add his control over the norman church profoundly secularized and almost absorbed into the lay society about it as a result of the norse invasion the norman church had been renewed and refreshed by the wave of monastic reform which swept over western europe in the first half of the eleventh century and now occupied both spiritually and intellectually a position of honor and of strength 
but it was not supreme. The duke appointed its bishops and most of its abbots, sat in its provincial councils, and revised the judgments of its courts. Liberal in gifts to the church and punctilious in his religious observances, William left no doubt who was master, and his respectful but independent attitude toward the papacy already foreshadowed the conflict in which he forced even the mighty Hildebrand to yield. I have dwelt at some length upon these matters of internal organization, not only because they are fundamental to an understanding of many institutions of the Norman Empire, but because they also serve to explain how there came to be a Norman Empire. The conquest of England has been so uniformly approached from the English point of view that it is often made to appear as more or less of an accident arising from a casual invasion of freebooters. Viewed in its proper perspective, which I venture to think is the Norman perspective, it appears as a natural outgrowth of Norman discipline and of Norman expansion. Only because the Duke was strong at home could he hope to be strong abroad, only because he was master of an extraordinarily vigorous, coherent, and well-organized state in Normandy, could he attempt the at first sight impossible task of conquering a kingdom, and the still greater task of organizing it under a firm government. We must take account not only of the weakness of England, but also of the strength of Normandy, stronger than any of its continental neighbors, stronger even than royalty itself. That the expansion of Normandy should be directed toward England was the result not only of the special conditions of the year 1066, but of a steady rapprochement between the two countries in which the active effort was exerted from the Norman side. By geographical position, by the Scandinavian settlement of both countries, and by the commercial enterprise of the merchants of Rouen, the history of Normandy and England had in various ways been brought together in the tenth century, till, in 1002, the marriage of the English king Ethelred with Emma, sister of Duke Richard the Good, created dynastic connections of far-reaching importance. Their son, Edward the Confessor, was brought up at the Norman court, so that his habits and sympathies became Norman rather than English, and his accession to the English throne in 1042 opened the way to a rapid development of Norman influence, both in church and in state, which Freeman, with his strong anti-foreign feelings, considered the real beginning of the Norman conquest. As Edward's childless reign drew near its end, there were two principal claimants for the succession, Harold, son of Godwin, the most powerful Earl of England, and Duke William. Harold could make no hereditary claim to the throne, nor until the eve of Edward's death does he seem to have had the king's support. But he was a man of strength and force, and was clearly the leading man of the kingdom. William, as the great-nephew of Ethelred and Emma, was cousin, first cousin once removed, of Edward, a claim which he strengthened by an early expression of Edward in his favor, and by an oath which he had exacted from Harold to support his candidacy. The exact facts are not known regarding Harold's oath, made during an involuntary visit to Normandy two or three years before, 
but it enabled William to pose as the defender of a broken obligation and to give him the great moral advantage of the support of Pope Alexander II, to whom he had the question submitted. At Edward's death, Harold had himself chosen by the Witan or National Council and crowned, so that he had on his side whatever could come from such legal forms and from the support which lay behind them. We must not, however, commit the anachronism of thinking that he was a national hero or even the candidate of a national party. There was in the eleventh century no such thing as a nation in the sense that the term is understood in the modern world, and the word could least of all be applied to England, broken, divided, and harried by Danish invasions and by internal disunion. Even the notion of the foreigner was still dim and inchoate, in the reign of Canute, to cite no others, had shown England that she had nothing to fear from a king of foreign birth. The contest between Harold, who was half Danish in blood, and William, big as it was in national consequences, cannot be elevated to the rank of a national struggle. From the death of Edward the Confessor and the coronation of Harold in January 1066 until the crossing of the Channel in September, William was busy with preparations for the invasion of England. Such an expedition transcended the obligation of military service which could be demanded from his feudal vassals, and William was obliged to make a strong appeal to the Norman love of adventure and feats of arms, and to promise wide lands and rich booty from his future conquests. He also found it necessary to enlist knights from other parts of France, Brittany, Flanders, Poitou, even adventurers from distant Spain and Sicily. And then there was the question of transport, for Normandy had no fleet, and it was no small matter to create in six months the seven hundred boats which William's kinsmen and vassals obligated themselves to provide. All were ready by the end of August at the mouth of the Dives, as the quaint Hôtel Guillaume le Conquérant reminds the American visitor. But the medieval sailors could not tack against the wind, and six weeks were passed in waiting for a favorable breeze. Finally, it was decided to take advantage of a west wind as far as the mouth of the Somme, and here at Saint-Valéry the fleet assembled for the final crossing. Late in September, the Normans landed on the beach at Pevensey and marched to Hastings, where, October 15th, they met the troops of Harold, fresh from their great victory over the men of Norway at Stamford Bridge. Few battles of the Middle Ages were of importance equal to that of Hastings, and few were better known. Besides the prose accounts of the Latin chroniclers, we have the contemporary elegiacs of Guy of Amiens and Baudry of Bourgueil, the spirited verse of the Romain de Roux of Master Wace, the most detailed narrative but written, unfortunately, a century after the event, and the unique and vivid portrayal of the Bayeux Tapestry. This remarkable monument, which is accessible to all in a variety of editions, consists of a roll of cloth 230 feet long and 20 inches in breadth, embroidered in colors with a series of 79 scenes which narrate the history of the conquest from the departure of Harold on the ill-fated journey which led him to William's court, down to the final discomfiture of the English army on the field of Hastings. 
the episodes which are designated by brief titles are well chosen and are executed with a realism of detail which is of the greatest importance for the life and culture of the age preserved in the cathedral and later in the municipal museum of bayeux save for a notable interval in eighteen o four when napoleon had it exhibited in paris to arouse enthusiasm for a new french conquest of england the tapestry appears from internal evidence to have been originally executed as an ornament for this cathedral by english workmen at the command of bishop odo half-brother of the conqueror there is no basis for the common belief that it was the work of queen matilda or her ladies but efforts to place it one or even two centuries later have proved unavailing against the evidence of armor and costume and the general opinion of scholars now regards it as belonging to the eleventh century and thus substantially contemporary with the events which it depicts the modern literature of the battle is also commensurate with its importance the classic account is found in the third volume of freeman's majestic history of the norman conquest where the story is told with a rare combination of minute detail and spirited narrative which reminds us it has been said of a battle of the iliad or a norse saga splendid as this narrative is its enthusiasm often carries it beyond the evidence of the sources and in several fundamental points it can no longer be accepted as historically sound the theory of the palisade upon which freeman's conception of the english tactics rested has been destroyed by the trenchant criticism of that profound student of anglo-norman history j horace round and his whole treatment has been vigorously attacked from the point of view of the scientific study of military history by wilhelm spatz and his distinguished master hans delbrück of berlin unfortunately the berlin critics are influenced too much by certain theories of military organization they do not call the english soldier of the period a degenerate but they consider him and the norman knight as well incapable of the disciplined and united action required by all real strategy incapable even of forming the shield wall and executing the feigned flight described by the contemporary chroniclers of the battle while it is true that medieval fighting was far more individualistic than that of ancient or modern armies and lacked also the flexible conditions which lie at the basis of modern tactics there is the best of contemporary evidence for a certain amount of strategical movement at hastings on one point however the modern military critics have compelled us to modify our ideas of the battles of earlier times namely with respect to the numbers engaged against the constant tendency to magnify the size of the military forces a tendency accentuated in the middle ages by the complete recklessness of chroniclers when dealing with large figures modern criticism has pointed out the limitations of battle space transportation and commissariat the five millions with which xerxes is said to have invaded greece was a physical impossibility for delbruck has shown that with this number moving under normal conditions the rear-guard could not have crossed the tigris when the first persians reached thermopylae similarly the fifty or sixty thousand knights attributed to william the conqueror shrink to one-tenth the number when brought to face with the official lists of english and norman knights fees 
if William's army did not exceed five or six thousand, that of Harold could not have been much greater and may well have been less, though William's panegyrist places the number of English at one million two hundred thousand. Not more than twelve thousand could have stood in the closest formation on the hill which they occupied at Hastings. Small skirmishes, these to those who have followed the battles of the Marne, the Enne, Vistula, and the San, yet none the less important in the world's history. In spite of all the controversy, the main lines of the battle seem fairly clear. The troops of Harold occupied a well-defended hill, eight miles inland from Hastings on the London Road. The professional guard of House Carls in front, protected by the solid wall of their shields, and supported by the thanes and other fully armed troops the levies of the countryside behind or at the sides armed with javelins stone clubs and farmers weapons they had few archers and no cavalry but the steep slope was well protected from the assaults of the norman's horse and favoured the firm defence which the english tactics dictated the norman lines consisted first of archers then of heavy-armed foot-soldiers and finally of the mailed horsemen their centre grouped about william and the standard which he had received from the pope after a preliminary attack by the archers and foot the knights came forward preceded by the minstrel taifer a jongleur whom a very brave heart ennobled qui moult bien chantou throwing his sword in the air and catching it as he sang de carlemagne et de roland et d'olivier et des vassals qui murirent en ronceval of roland and of charlemagne oliver and the vassals all who fell in fight at ronceval but the horses recoiled from the hill pursued by many of the english and only the sight of william his head barred of its helmet so as to be seen by his men rallied the knights again the mass of the english stood firm behind their shield wall and their line could be broken only by the ruse of a feigned flight from which the normans turned to surround and cut to pieces their pursuers even then the house carls were unmoved until the arrows of the high-shooting norman bowmen finally opened up the gaps in their ranks into which william's horsemen pressed against the battle-axes of the king's guard and then as darkness began to fall harold was mortally wounded by an arrow the guard was cut to pieces and the remnant fled here harold was killed and the english turned to flight is the final heading in the bayeux tapestry while in the margin the spoilers strip the coats of mail from the dead and drive off the horses of the slain knights a single battle settled the fate of england there was still grim work to be done, the humbling of Exeter, the harrying of Northumberland, the subjection of the earls, but these were only local episodes. There was no one but William who could effectively take Harold's place, and when on Christmas Day he had been crowned at London, he could reduce opposition at his leisure. The chronicle of these later years belongs to English rather than to Norman history the results of the conquest too are of chief significance for the conquered for the normans the immediate effect was a great opportunity for expansion in every department of life there was work for the warrior in completing the subjugation of the land 
for the organizer and statesman in the new adjustments of central and local government for the prelate in bringing his new diocese into line with the practice of the church on the continent for the monks to found new priories and administer the new lands which their monasteries now received beyond the channel the norman townsman and the norman merchant followed hard upon the norman armies in the norman colony in london in the traders of the ports in the boroughs of the western border in part of course the change was simply the replacing of one set of persons by another putting a norman archbishop in place of stigand at canterbury spreading over the map the montgomerys and percys the mowbrays and mortimers and scores of other household names of english history but it was also a work of readjustment and reorganization which required all the norman gift for constructive work a certain elan passes through norman life and reflects itself in norman literature as the normans become more conscious of the glory of their achievements and the greatness of their new empire england had become an appendage to normandy and men did not yet see that the relation would soon be reversed for england the norman conquest determined permanently the orientation of english politics and english culture geographically belonging with the scandinavian countries to the outlying lands of europe the british isles had been in serious danger of sharing their remoteness from the general movements of european life and drifting into the backwaters of history the union with normandy turned england southward and brought it at once into the full current of european affairs political entanglements ecclesiastical connections cultural influences england became a part of france and thus entered fully into the life of the world to which france belonged it received the speech of france the literature of france and the art of france its law became in large measure frankish its institutions more completely feudal yet the connection with france ran through normandy and the french influence took on norman forms most of all was this true in the field in which the norman excelled that of government english feudalism was norman feudalism in which the barons were weak and the central power strong and it was the heavy hand of norman kingship that turned the loose and disintegrating anglo-saxon state into the english nation england was europeanized only at the price of being normanized from the point of view both of immediate achievement and of ultimate results the conquest of england was the crowning act of norman history something doubtless was due to good fortune to the absence of an english fleet to the favorable opportunity in french politics to the mistakes of the english but the fundamental facts without which these would have meant nothing were the strength and discipline of normandy and the personality of her leader diplomat warrior leader of men william was preeminently a statesman and it was his organizing genius which turned the defeat of english arms into the making of the english nation this talent for political organization was however no isolated endowment of the norman duke but was shared in large measure by the norman barons as is abundantly shown by the history of norman rule in italy and sicily for william and his followers the conquest of england only gave a wider field for qualities of state-building 
which had already shown themselves in Normandy. End of section 6